downloading UW alumni voices. Simon Griffiths, co-founder and CEO of Who Gives a Crap, is a man who truly does give a crap about 2.3 billion people of the world who don't have access to a proper toilet. So passionate is he about development aid, he sat on a toilet for 50 hours to raise $50,000 in crowdfunding donations. To get the most out of life, Simon knew that he needed a career that was more about just making money. In today's podcast, he'll be talking about how he's taken that desire and turned it into Who Gives a Crap, a direct consumer toilet paper business that's donated more than $2.5 million to help build toilets in the developing world. He'll share what drives him and his team, walk through some of their current strategy, and end with the key lessons that he's learned in scaling up a global social business. Regardless of where you're at in your career today, you come by with something you can use, and plenty of laughs too. Thank you. It's great to be here. I love coming back to Perth because, uh, yeah, I grew up just up the road from here, which um, it's always nice to come back and have some warm weather after being in Melbourne for a while. So I think, uh, yeah, what I wanted to do today is, I guess, first of all, tell you a little bit about my story and who I am and what I do. And then I wanted to talk a little bit about success and failure, because I think it's really easy to talk about our successes and less easy or quite a bit harder to talk about our failures, but there's actually so much that we can learn from them. And then lastly, I wanted to share with you the 10 lessons that I wish I'd known when I'd graduated from university um, to help me with my career. And then hopefully at the end, we'll have some time for Q&A if there's anything that you're thinking about. And so I think, um, yeah, to start off with, I wanted to kind of take you back to where this whole journey started for me, which was up the road in um, Swanbourne in uh, Perth. So uh, about five kilometers or so from here. And I'd finished high school in the end of 1999 and it applied to a couple of universities. Um, I wanted to do engineering and economics, but it turned out that I didn't have the prerequisites to get into engineering at UWA, but for some reason I did at the University of Melbourne. And so I ended up moving from Perth to Melbourne to go and study at the University of Melbourne. Now, you know, as any good economist would do, I kind of thought about how to spend my time over my holidays and, and what the cost of the different opportunities that were available to me would look like. And I realized that it would actually be much cheaper for me to spend all of my holidays in Southeast Asia than it would be to come back to Western Australia because the cost of flights were about the same, but the cost of living was obviously a lot lower in Southeast Asia. And so almost by accident, I guess, or um, out of um, self-interest, I kind of spent each of my university holidays living, traveling, doing volunteer work in different parts of Southeast Asia. And it was there that I really kind of got this first idea for what I wanted to do for, for my career. Um, and that was when I started thinking about changing lives. And I realized that there was one life that was being left behind, one life that was being forgotten. I'm talking, of course, about the life of toilet paper. Now, what I realized is that toilet paper had been behind us every single day of our lives. And I thought that it was time that we all got behind toilet paper. That's why I wanted to start a toilet paper company that uses its profits to help build toilets in different parts of the developing world. Now, look, I'm not going to lie to you. This did actually all start because toilets are funny. They're so funny that they've got their own genre of humor named after them, and not many things can lay claim to that. But it turns out, as I'd realized after spending a lot of time in different parts of Southeast Asia, toilets aren't actually that funny for about 40% of the entire world, or at the time, the 2.4 billion people that didn't have access to a toilet. 
This is a massive problem. First of all, we're talking about a huge proportion of the entire population, but it's also really devastating in terms of the health impact that comes from not having access to a clean toilet. The short version of the story is that the bad stuff ends up in water that's used to then cook, clean and wash, and that results in diarrhoeal-related disease that is the number one filler of hospital beds in the developing world, and it's the number two killer, the second largest killer of children under the age of five, killing a, a bit more than 700 kids on average under the age of five every single day. Now, unlike a lot of these social problems that, that we have in the world, the good news for this one is that we know what the solution to this is. We have to build more toilets and provide access to education around the importance of hygiene and sanitation. All of the research that's been done on this tells us that we know that every dollar that we're spending on sanitation results in a $4 economic improvement. So we know that there's a huge return on investment here. And when I saw this number, I just wanted to say, why can't we get more money flowing into this space if we know that this is a problem we can solve and every dollar that we're putting in has got a really high ROI? That is the reason why I wanted to start an environmentally sustainable toilet paper company that sells a product here in Australia and now in the US and the UK as well and uses half of its profits to help build toilets in different parts of the developing world. And as soon as I had the idea for this, for obvious reasons, I knew that this had to be called Who Gives a Crap? Now, I did what I think every you know, 20-year-old does when they have a great idea. I sat down on my laptop and typed into Google, how do you start a toilet paper company? And I figured out pretty quickly that the biggest hurdle was going to be the initial production run, which was um, basically a minimum order of about 50,000 rolls of toilet paper, so enough to fill your entire house from floor to ceiling with toilet paper, which is a pretty big problem if you can't find people to buy it but it was also gonna cost us $50,000 to make that happen. And I had about $30 in my bank at this point in time. And so I, we took a step back, I guess, and said, how can we kind of bring this idea to life and also test if there's people that, that think this is a good enough idea for us to spend the next five or 10 years of our life turning this into a reality. And we realized in July, 2012 that um, crowdfunding was just becoming you know, something that was a popular concept. I think in July 2012, there'd been six $1 million crowdfunding campaigns. Kickstarter was not yet a household name. When you fast forward to today, you know, there's probably a million dollar crowdfunding campaign getting launched every single day, if not more often than that. And so we said, you know, crowdfunding is just becoming popular. What if we can latch onto this concept and use it to help take this idea to market? And so we set ourselves a $50,000 pre-sales target but realized that we were selling one of the most boring products in the world, toilet paper. And so we'd have to think about how to launch a campaign in order to get people's attention and to do things a little bit differently. And so what I want to do is show you the campaign launch video that we used to bring this idea to life. Hi, I'm Simon Griffiths, co-founder of Who Gives a Crap? We reckon every trip to the bathroom should be a feel-good experience. So we've spent the last two years developing the only toilet paper that delivers one every time. Who gives a crap? It's a breakthrough on so many levels. Let me take you through them. It's better for the environment and we've cut the nasties so it's better for your body. That feels good. But unlike other recycled toilet paper, we're all about comfort. So it has a beautiful fluffy texture and low PTR or poke-through rate. That feels good. You can choose to buy it off the shelf or have it home delivered. Either way, it costs the same as other brands, but comes with 1,200% more puns. That feels good. 
But here's where we're really on a roll. 50% of our profits go to sanitation projects in the developing world. You see, while a trip to the bathroom can be the ultimate feel-good experience for some, for many, it's not. Because 2.4 billion people don't have access to a proper toilet. The bad stuff ends up in waterways, causing diseases that fill half the hospital beds in the developing world. That doesn't feel very good. And that's why we're donating 50% of our profits to WaterAid. WaterAid helped the world's poorest people access clean water, sanitation and hygiene education. They're literally saving the world from the bottom up. It's as simple as that. We take something that everybody needs and use the proceeds to help people in need. And that feels really good. Heading up Who Gives a Crap, Jehan Ratnatunga in LA, Danny Alexander in New York, and myself down in Melbourne, Australia. We're engineers and product designers who in 2010, through a shared passion for humanitarian aid and toilet humour, developed a business model that grabbed a lot of headlines and won a bunch of awards for entrepreneurship. We're busting to press go on the first production run and create Who Gives a Crap's first edition. Our feel-good toilet paper needs a feel-good price. And for that, we have to order in bulk. But we need $50,000 to make that happen. Basically, we need toilet paper. And like anyone who's waiting for toilet paper, we need someone to help us out. We're asking for your support. We need $50,000 to fill our warehouse with the first bulk order of Who Gives a Crap. And I won't be leaving this toilet until we've raised enough for our first order. I'm sitting down for what I believe in, and I'm not getting up until I've got some toilet paper. $50,000 worth. Till then, you can jump on our website and see me sitting right here on our live feed. So please, bit of help. So when you jumped onto our campaign page, this is what it looks like on our website. We're about two and a half hours in at this point. I think we've got $4,000 of pre-sales in the bank. So we're quite optimistic that we're gonna be able to hit this target um, quite quickly. Fortunately, after this screenshot was taken, we got picked up by national television in Australia, national print in Australia, national print in the US, and we quite quickly went viral on social media. We managed to generate 2.5 million social media hits from this campaign. And we're strangely popular in Brazil and Greece and we still haven't figured out exactly what was going on there. But after 50 of the most horrible, never ever to be repeated hours of my life, we hit that $50,000 pre-sales target and we were in business, which was really exciting. Now, unfortunately, at this point, we realized something that we knew was necessary to our success hadn't happened. And that was that supermarkets hadn't paid any attention to this campaign, despite it getting a lot of press and a lot of attention. And so we realized that initially, at least, we would not be working with supermarkets and we need to be an online only business. And honestly, that's what 95% of our business still is today. And so we said, if we're going to sell online, how do we make a product that our customers will love because you know, they're used to buying toilet paper on shelves, we're gonna to need to make it stand out in a way that's quite unique and quite different. And so we took a step back and said, we don't need to wrap our, our toilet paper in these big plastic bags with 20 rolls in them. Instead, we can wrap every roll individually in one of five fun, unique, well-designed wrappers. We put three red emergency rolls into the bottom of every box so you'd know when you're about to run out, which you know, solves the age-old toilet paper problem. And we set up a subscription service where we work with your household to figure out what your usage frequency looks like, and then we ship you a box three days before you're going to run out so you never ever have to think about buying toilet paper again. 
So we did all of this stuff, which you know, in 2012 was quite novel. It took us about eight months to, to do the first production run and, and fill our warehouse with product that we thought was going to last about three months based on our daily sales rates. And then we started sending product out to our crowdfunding campaign supporters. And without us doing any marketing or any sales ourselves, all of a sudden we started to see our daily sales double each day, double again. And after five days, we sold out of that complete three month supplier that we had in our warehouse. We weren't sure what had happened until we jumped online and saw that our customers were sharing photos of our products with their pets, with their kids. They were literally taking roles to work, giving them to colleagues and telling everyone that they knew about what we were doing. We'd created this huge word of mouth groundswell around toilet paper, which had never ever happened before in the history of the world. And so this was awesome, um, but it meant that we we're probably gonna be a much bigger toilet paper company than we thought was possible with just an online store. And so we had to triple down our order volume and it took us about three months to catch back up again. In that time, we also wrote our first check to WaterAid, who were the main beneficiary we were working with. We wrote them a check on the 30th of June, 2013 for $2,500, which kind of closed the loop of our customers buying our product and then us making a donation, which would go and create impact as a result of that transaction. And so we're about six and a half years on from this first donation now. I think in that time, we've continued to grow the business at a really rapid pace, doubling or tripling every single year for those six years. And that's largely been due to this same word of mouth groundswell that's continued and been our main driver of um, customers finding out about us through word of mouth. In that same time, um, about two years ago, we entered into the US and the UK, which are now our two fastest growing markets. We've grown our team from just me working full time in the business to I think about 75 today. And we're adding new people every week because the business is growing quite quickly. As of June this year, we took our total donations from the first six years of trade up to two and a half million Australian dollars, which we're hugely excited about but I think even more excited to now see this number just growing at a faster and faster rate. And so we're super excited to see where we can get to in the next you know, three to five years as well. So this is a success story. <laughs> let's not, um, let's not you know, sugarcoat it any more than that. But I didn't want to just tell you about my biggest success story because the truth is that I've actually got a hell of a lot of failures under my belt as well. And so I wanted to tell you my biggest success story alongside my biggest failure story. And my biggest failure story is of a hospitality business, a nonprofit bar and band room that I ran in Melbourne called Shabeen. And the idea behind Shabeen was that we sold different beers and wines from all over the developing world. And then 100% of our profits from those sales went back to organizations in each drink's country of origin. So if you came in and had an Ethiopian beer, the idea was that you'd be helping to support an Ethiopian um, farm project in, in rural Ethiopia. A glass of South African wine would be helping to support local language books to school kids in KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. Now, this was a crazy idea again. This was um, you know, about 10 years ago now that we started working on this. And like with any crazy idea, we wanted to test it to figure out if this was something that had legs. And so we started by selling our Ethiopian beer at Madame Brussels, which is quite a well-known cocktail bar in Melbourne. We consistently saw that it was one of their top five beers that they were selling. So it was outperforming a lot of really well-known imported European beers, which you know, um, I'm sure you all would have heard of. So there's a lot of intrigue around our product, which was 
great, this unknown Ethiopian beer. And so off the back of that, we opened a, a temporary pop-up bar in the basement of a CBD building for four days where we sold all of our products and tried to get interest around the concept to see if people thought it was a good idea. We overshot the revenue projections or we doubled the revenue projections of our permanent business model um, through that pop-up bar. So we validated that it could work and showed that it could potentially be even more successful than what we originally thought. Off the back of that, we raised the capital we needed and secured the lease to open what was the second non-profit bar in the world in February 2013. This was in Manchester Lane in Melbourne. So this was um, a big moment for us. We were super proud of, of you know, getting this crazy idea off the ground. It was many years of work. And we opened to a lot of fanfare, which was amazing. We had a lot of international coverage around what we'd done because it was such a novel concept globally. So what I did was I, I made up this graph to kind of walk you through the, the journey that we went on as a business. And we got off to a really amazing first six months of trade where we turned an early profit and we made our first donation. Again, kind of closing the loop on the idea of our customers making a transaction and us being able to create impacts. Now, shortly after that first donation, we went through this period of, of mixed trade where one month we were a little bit profitable, the next month we were losing a little bit of money, but overall we were roughly break even. This is common in new hospitality businesses as you're finding your feet with your management team and really getting bedded in in order to get the business working well. And so we weren't too worried. We, we put in place a plan to return to profitability. And then just as we began executing on this plan, we discovered something that was gonna change the fate of the business forever. And that was that the wall of our basement level band room, which we thought backed onto dirt, was actually shared with the Melbourne East Police Station's sleeping quarters. So this police station that was around the block from us somehow had this rabbit warren of kind of tunnels that had put their sleeping quarters up against the wall of our band room. Now, it's fair to say that running a band room with neighbors is tricky, but when those neighbors are police who are trying to sleep, this becomes a very, very difficult challenge. So we did everything that we could to appease them. The short version of this story, unfortunately, is that the police didn't play very fair. As a result, we had a lot of restrictions placed on our business, the harshest of which was an 11 p.m. curfew on live music. We couldn't, as a result of that, book the same caliber of bands that we'd used to build up the business model in the years prior. And as a result, our patron numbers dropped by 15%, our revenue dropped by 20%, and we couldn't cut the costs in the business fast enough to keep it profitable. So for the first time, we started to consistently lose money month after month, which is not a good place to be when you're trying to create profit and donations from that profit. So we tried everything we could to, to get out of this. We had great advisors, great lawyers who said that we should be able to work our way out of this. After 12 months, we had a ruling against us and we said, the only responsible thing we can do is, is wrap this business up, unfortunately. The end result was donations that were less than anyone had hoped for or anyone expected, a little bit more than $20,000. And I think, um, you know, I think probably the saddest thing about this whole process was not the donations, but, but how the shutdown was portrayed in the media, who chose to try and tell a scandalous story as opposed to the nuance of the challenges of running a social business with police next door. 
And so although um, you know, the shutdown was something that was really hard for us to go through, it was actually something that we knew had a lot of really positive ripple effects throughout the society around us. We heard from lots of people who'd had really positive experiences there and, and Shabin had changed the way that they thought about what they wanted to do with their career. And for me personally, it taught me a hell of a lot about how to run a scalable, successful social business. In a way, this was my very expensive MBA that I had to go through. And so the moral of this story is that success actually does come from failure. Now, when we kind of look at the, the research behind this, it's now something that's well documented that when we're trying something new, when we're innovating, when we're doing something for the first time, we're going to get that wrong 90% of the time. But that point of failure where we do get it wrong, that isn't where we stop. Instead, it becomes a point on the journey taking us one step closer to success because it teaches us so much about what did work, what didn't work, and potentially some unexpected things that we didn't even know about, which I can talk about a little bit later on. And so I think this idea of using failure as a necessary part of success is now quite well understood in the business world. But I think as a society, we actually have a long way to go in order to putting this into practice. And so what I wanted to do is walk you through the kind of four steps that we use when we think about making failure a necessary part of success. And for us, that starts with testing the smallest possible version of a concept that we want to put out into the world. When we have a new idea, we say, how can we test this in under two weeks for less than $500? We'll release it to the smallest possible audience because we know that 90% of the time it's going to fail and we don't want to damage the brand that we've got. So we're trying to release it to you know, less than 1,000 people. And then once we've done that, we'll listen really intently to the feedback that those people who ideally have paid for that product have got for us. Because people who've paid for something, they have much better feedback than someone who you're just asking for um, you know, a question in a survey or, or what they think they might like to spend money on, which tends to give you a more biased response. So we listen intently to that feedback and then we use that feedback to adjust the product, knowing that we're going to, to relaunch it. We're going to put it out into the world again um, and see how it's successful. And so that's the fourth step is to repeat. We come back and we test this new version that we've created now to a slightly bigger audience because we know it's more likely to be successful. And we continue this process over and over again. So we do this for all of our physical products at Shabin. This is how, I'm sorry, at Who Gives a Crap? This is how we launched our tissues, which um, we were our second product that we launched. As an engineer, I got really frustrated with the dead space in the top of the tissue boxes and said, why can't we put as many tissues as we can in there to create great value for our customers? And so we did that. We produced the minimum order that we could, which was about 2,000 boxes, and we sold them to 2,000 customers. And I thought we'd done a really great job, and our customers came back saying, tissue quality is good, but I can't get the first 10 tissues out of the box without them tearing because you packed them in there so tightly. And so we had to reduce the number of tissues in the box by 10 in order to create a much better customer experience, but it also saved us money because we were now paying less for the, the goods that we were actually manufacturing. About six months ago, we had a lot of customers writing into us saying, I love your tissues, but why have you got single-use plastic in the top of your tissue boxes. And so using that feedback, we went back through our supply chain, we removed single-use plastic from our tissue boxes and through 95% of the rest of our supply chain and we're still working on that 5% now. We did all of that in four months to get us ready for plastic-free July this year. And so this concept of testing, 
listening for feedback, learning what's going on and adjusting. We're constantly doing that for every single product that we launch. But this isn't just for products. You might be able to see that this is what happened for me with Shabin, where Shabin was a test that ultimately gave me a lot of feedback that allowed me to adjust the business model and launch Who Gives a Crap as a 50% profit donation business model instead of a 100% profit donation business model that was um, ultimately part of what made Shabin a really difficult business to run. And this is also how I've thought about my career. So when I was at university, I spent one summer working as an engineer. I realized that wasn't what I wanted to do. And I spent the next summer working as an investment banker and realized that wasn't what I wanted to do. And then went and worked in a nonprofit as soon as I'd finished before realizing that I actually kind of wanted to combine all of those things together and run a business with the toolkit that I'd learned at university that catered to the social outcomes that I was really passionate about in the nonprofit. So I think this kind of brings me really nicely to these 10 lessons that I wish I'd learnt when I was sitting where you guys were about 10 years ago now. And I think um, the first lesson that hopefully is starting to ring true now is to stop talking and start doing. And the idea here is that everyone has ideas, but ideas don't matter unless you go and do something with them. When you have big ideas, when you have crazy ideas, it can feel absolutely paralyzing to actually turn them into a reality. And so when we have new ideas, we're always saying, well, let's stop talking about it, start doing and figure out how we can make this work. The way that we do that is we break down into the smallest possible chunk. So we go from this massive idea that we've got and we bring it back to what can we do today to just get started? What can we do in the next week to test if this is something that we think is worth exploring further. And so always breaking it down into those chunks and then seeing um, what's possible because we know that as soon as we get started, we'll learn so much about this idea, about this concept that potentially we didn't know before and that will fuel how we want to carry this forward. And so with Who Gives a Crap, um, this was kind of a difficult idea to, to test out. You know, we're trying to start a toilet paper company. There's like six toilet paper companies in Australia because they're really hard to get started. And so we said, what can we do today to test if this idea can work? We went to the supermarket. We bought someone else's toilet paper. We spent 40 bucks and set up a Shopify store online and then bought Google AdWords using the free $100 credit that came with our Shopify store on everyone searching for toilet paper. We pointed them to our store to see if we could get them to buy who gives a crap toilet paper that donated 50% of its profits. We made our first sale, which was really exciting. We validated that people would buy toilet paper online, that the who gives a crap brand name was something that wasn't too offensive and it could actually be something that could work in a, a real life situation. And we took our first box of toilet paper, it was 48 rolls that we'd sold for $30 to the post office in, in Melbourne, just down the road from my house. The Australia Post had told us on the phone that it was going to cost $8 to send this box anywhere in the country. And so I very proudly put the box on the table and said, can you please send this to our first customer in Albany, Western Australia? And they said, yeah, no problem. That'd be $54. And so we lost $24, let alone, you know, the cost of goods that we'd had to, to put into that box to make that order. But we'd got started and we'd learned that logistics were going to be one of the biggest barriers in order to making us successful. We figured out pretty quickly after that that we could warehouse in Melbourne and ship to you know, Adelaide up to Brisbane, all of northern Queensland 
from that one warehouse fairly cost, you know, fairly cost effective manner. But WA was going to be a bit tricky for us. And being from WA, I felt it was important that we didn't just service, you know, half of the country in terms of geography. And so what we realized was that we needed to set up a satellite warehouse. And so uh, my parents still live here. My dad's actually sitting up the back and they ran our first satellite warehouse in their garage where we put pallets of toilet paper on the train to them. They got delivered to my parents' garage and my dad drove around in our family car dropping toilet paper boxes off to people going, I'm Simon's dad, you know, thank you for being a customer. I was like, dad, that is the most embarrassing thing that you can do. You need to tell them that you're a volunteer that's helping us to have more impact so that we look bigger than what we actually are. And so that's how we got started. About six months after that, dad said, look, I'm sick of being your warehouse. I'm going on holiday. You have to find someone else that's going to do this for you. And that was what got us to the point where we could open our second warehouse. And now we have six all around the country, two in the US and, and one in the UK. And so just by getting started, we learned so much about what we didn't know that ultimately told us that this could be successful if we figured out some of these harder questions that we had to answer. Lesson two is to take risks. And the idea here is that not all risks are worth taking, and we'll talk about that. But if you're going to try something new, if you're going to do something different, you need to step off the well-trodden path and do something that maybe people haven't tried before or, or, or maybe someone um, you know, is encouraging you to have a go at to see if there's something in that because a lot of the time you don't know what you don't know. Now, I think when it comes to, to risk-taking, you really need to think about what's the potential payoff that will happen from taking this risk and what's the likelihood of it being successful. And that will help you understand whether these risks are worth taking. There's environments where it's really healthy to take risks. Um, I heard someone talk about how when you're in your 20s, you're a billionaire. You're a time billionaire because you're going to have more time than you will for the rest of your life while you don't have probably a family or a mortgage. And so as a result, that is an environment where you've probably got more of an ability to take risks than you will in any other part of your life. You don't want to take too many risks at university because you don't want to fail subjects. You don't want to take too many risks later on in your life when you've got a mortgage that you have to make repayments on and a family that you have to support. And I think the other part of this is thinking about the environment that you're in and whether the time is right to take risks. So when you're just starting in a new job, you don't want to be taking too many risks because you might be seen as, as someone that's um, you know, flighty or unreliable. And so figuring out what the right time in your career, in your current job, in your life, it, it is possible to take risks, I think is an important part of this equation. Lesson three builds on this, and it's the idea that if you're going to stop talking and start doing and take risks, you're inevitably going to fail. And that's okay, because we've talked about failure being a necessary part of success. Each time that we fail takes us one step closer to being successful in the future. I think if you're going to go on this journey of using failure as a necessary part of success, which honestly we've probably all done in our lives, this is how we learn how to ride a bike, we continually fail until we get it right. It's how we learn how to swim, we continually fail until we get it right. In life, failure is how we learn. It's probably not how we learn at university, but it's how we learn in life. And so I think um, with this one, you need to get ready to prepare yourself for those failures and build your resilience to make it possible to fail. And what I learned going through Shabin is, is that means having an expectation that 
you will get it wrong at some point and that's okay because you're going to get back up dust yourself off figure out what worked and what didn't and then keep on going what i found made this really difficult with shabin was my ego and my ego had been built up by the early successes it then got bruised on the way down and it was my ego that made it really hard to get back up again and keep going so if you're going to go on this journey of using failure as a necessary part of success, I think it's important to learn to check your ego at the door and make sure that it's not part of the equation at the point where you get to that moment of failure. Lesson four is that honesty is the best policy. And this comes from knowing that if you're going to try things, take risks and fail, you will get things wrong by definition. And when that happens, the best thing that you can do is be open and honest as quickly as possible. And so we've learned this time and time again with Who Gives a Crap. But probably the first and biggest time we learned this was when we did our very first production run. At the time, I was the only person in the company and I went to um, our production facility to do all of the quality control on that first production run. I'm an engineer, but I'm an electrical engineer, so I didn't know that much about manufacturing. I thought I'd done a pretty good job on our manufacturing and our quality control, and we started sending product out to our customers, and it was a really proud moment until our customers wrote in saying, I love this concept, but the product quality is terrible. I can't get the sheets apart without a pair of scissors. And it turned out that I'd forgotten to check that our perforating blades were being sharpened regularly enough. We produced 200,000 rolls of imperfectly perforated toilet paper, and you literally couldn't get the sheets apart without a pair of scissors. So this was a pretty big problem. I said, you know, I think there's only one thing I can do here. I need to be open and honest. And so I put up my hand and said, I am so sorry. You guys have backed this crazy idea that I had and I owed it to you to get this right. And I've gone and got this completely wrong. And that's my fault and I'm so sorry for that. But I think this idea is too good to let pass from this one mistake. If you can please believe in us just one more time, we're gonna make perforations the top priority on the next production run. We went and did the production run, we took photos of the perforations, and we made videos of sheets tearing perfectly off toilet roll holders in the bathroom of my share house. We sent them out to our customers and luckily enough people came back and bought again and continued telling their friends about us and that word of mouth groundswell continued. But if I'd put up my hand and said, what are you talking about? There's no problem here, the product's great. I think we probably would have bankrupted the business before we'd even got started. And so we have this saying in our business, or probably two sayings, with our customers, it's our customers will forgive us for our lumps and our bumps as long as we're open and honest about them. And so whenever a customer asks a question, if we don't know the answer to that question, we will find it and we will be transparent about what the answer is. The other saying that we have internally is that good news, sorry, bad news travels fast and good news has the luxury of traveling slow. So when something goes wrong, we wanna know about it straight away so that we can all figure out how to fix it. And it's a sign of strength to be able to admit when something's gone wrong and be able to talk about that with your manager in the business. Lesson five is to follow your passion. And I think this came from me from that experience I had at university where I went and worked as an electrical engineer and then as an investment banker. And I found that in those roles, I was about 70% as efficient as what I could be when I was really doing something that I loved. To me, that meant I felt sluggish every day. I just didn't really enjoy being at work. And as a result, I knew that it wasn't quite right for me. What I found was I was waking up in the morning, too many mornings in the row, 
thinking, I don't really want to get out of bed and go to work today. And so for me, that meant I needed to find a change in my life because I wasn't doing something that I was truly passionate about. I found that when I was working on things that I really cared about, that I was passionate about, it didn't feel like work. It just felt like a hobby and it was effortless and I enjoyed it and I was much happier and I was excited to get out of bed in the morning. And so I always encourage everyone to try and find their passion. But this is something that's not easy to do. I was lucky to do this in my 20s. I know lots of people in their 30s who still haven't figured out what, they, what this is. It's common to figure it out in your 40s and your 50s and that's okay. So you don't need to beat, beat yourself up if you, you, you haven't figured out what your passion is yet. But if you can find it, then I think it's something that makes life incredibly rewarding. So the kind of evolution of this is to let your passion follow you. And this is the idea that sometimes you don't know what your passion is and that's okay. But the way to find it is to try things out and sometimes do things that you don't enjoy straight away because they're hard. You haven't done them before. And so it takes time, you know, six or 12 months of doing something before occasionally your passion will sneak up behind you and say, hey, maybe this is something that you're actually really passionate about. For me, what I realized in the last 12 months or so is that I actually really enjoy working with teams and, and managing people. If you'd asked me three years ago what I hated most about work, I would have told you it was working with teams and managing people. And it was just that I didn't have the experience in doing that. And so spending the last few years working on something that I wasn't good at allowed me to uncover this passion, which will now um, you know, pay dividends for, for the rest of my life. So, the kind of evolution of this is that there's no hurry to do these things. And this is something that I think all of my friends and myself have wished that we'd been told once we were finishing university and in the you know, first few years outside of university. I think when you're at university, you're kind of told that you need to go out and get a graduate job straight away. You know, that there's risk if you take time off, there's risk if you take a gap year, and same once you're in the workforce. And I actually think the opposite of that is true. I took uh, quite a few breaks through my university degree for a number of different reasons and had a couple of breaks in between, you know, what I was thinking about for my career as well. Now, when I look at other people's CVs, when I see a gap in there, I want to know what they chose to do with that gap. And I see it as a strength where they've probably found they're at a point where in their career, they've realized things aren't quite right and they've taken time out to figure out what is right for them to try and find their passion, to find out a bit more about themselves. And as a result, the opportunities that they're now looking at are things that are more closely connected to what their personal value set looks like. So they've figured out what it is that motivates them and the job that they're now talking to me about is something that you know, they're much more likely to be successful at. And so I see those gaps in people's CVs as being a real strength and I'd always, always encourage people to, to consider taking that time out if you have the ability to do that. Not everyone does, it can be really tricky to, to find that time and to, to resource it and make it possible from a financial perspective. Lesson eight is that you can't do that. And this comes from the idea that if you're going to stop talking, start doing, take risks, get things wrong and fail, have to make apologies and be honest about them, you're going to be told time and time again that you can't do that. That's not something that you should do. Sometimes these people will be correct and it's important that you listen to them but a lot of the time they're not gonna be correct. And it's important that you take this, you can't do that 
and you use it as something that motivates you to show that person that they're wrong. You have to figure out and navigate when someone's telling you something that's right and when someone's giving you advice that you should turn your back on and walk against. But if we'd stopped every time someone said to us, you can't do that, there's no way who gives a crap would exist today. We had a lot of marketing experts say that you just can't launch a toilet paper company called Who Gives a Crap. It's not possible. No one will buy it. It's you know, not a brand that can make sense. And we're now selling, we're about to sell our 100 millionth role globally from the first six years. And so there's a 100 million people out there uh, or 100 million roles out there that people have seen with that brand name on it. And so sometimes you can't do that has to be a motivation to show that actually you can and this is a new way of doing things. Lesson nine is that we can't do this alone. And for me, this came from the realization that when you look at the sanitation problem, at current rates of improvement, we won't achieve global access to toilets until 2085. We're talking about one of the most basic human needs here. This is something we all have the privilege of taking for granted every single day. So it's our mission, I should say like, when I first did the maths on this and worked this out, I realized that I wasn't gonna be alive to see this happen. And maybe some of the people in this room will be, but a lot of us won't be. To me, that seems absolutely crazy when we know what the solution to this problem is and we know that the return on investment is there. And so it's our company's mission to try and cut this in half and see if we can get global access to sanitation by 2050. But sanitation is just one of the many social problems that we have in our world. And so we took a step back and said, you know, we're happy with how we're approaching the sanitation problem. What about everything else? And we realized that the best thing that we can do as a business is show that our business model can achieve a financial return for its shareholders whilst also achieving a social impact return at scale. If we can do that and you know, make that into something that is at scale, so we're talking about a company that's doing billions of dollars of revenue, if we can do that, then we will show that it's possible for business models like this to really have a huge amount of impact in the world. And we're gonna to need to do that to attract more entrepreneurs and more investors into the social business space to create thousands or tens of thousands of business models like ours to tackle all of these problems that are out there. And so that's the mission that we're on as a business. So what I wanted to do is turn this one around and ask you what it might be that you could do to, to help us on this mission. Is there something that you could do at your work or maybe your university is not so relevant now, but is there something you could do at your work to help your workplace be more impactful? Could you influence how they're procuring their stationery to make sure that it's all sustainable? Or could you push for a product to be launched that gives back? Imagine if every company, big and small, had a product that had you know, a portion of its profits being donated every time it was sold. The impact from that would be absolutely massive. On an individual level, can you think about how you're spending your money each day or each week or each month to make some of those small decisions a little bit more impactful? Could you scale that up to a community level and think about how you can have more impact by doing something with your community? Or have you had one of these crazy ideas like Shabin or who gives a crap and a fear of failing is what's been holding you back? The last lesson that I'll leave you with is that you should definitely not sit on a toilet for 50 hours. That's everything I've learned from trying to save the world with beer and toilet paper. And to that I say, bottoms up.
Thank you. Do we have time for questions? I'm not sure where we're at. We have about five minutes. Five minutes, yeah, yeah. cool. So you do have to, um, if you could, if you have a question, we need you to ask the question into the microphone. When you were talking about uh, you start this company without having enough money, so you pretty much start a campaign first to get enough money. So you are selling an idea. So you actually don't have like a manufacturer's lined up, you don't have, yeah. So you don't pretty much, if you get orders, you kind of have to figure it out, okay, where I'm gonna get all the products and stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, sorry. Also, my question is, um, so you're pretty much taking a risk there, because what if the stuff, like you get so many orders and you can't like achieve and all fulfill the, you know, the orders that you've got. So I was just wondering, why would you think that's the best way to go about it? Yeah. Uh, sort out the product so for thing. us, um, we would never take an order with an expectation that we wouldn't be able to fulfill it. Um, so when we set up that Shopify test store and we were selling you know, our first few boxes by using AdWords to direct traffic to our website, we were fulfilling those orders um, with toilet paper that we'd bought from another brand and put into those boxes. But when we ran our crowdfunding campaign, we'd gone through the, the process of finding a manufacturer who could mass produce for us and, and produce the brand that, you know, that, that we were really proud of. And so we had them lined up, um, but it took about eight months to go from getting the capital to actually doing the full manufacturing run to getting it into our warehouse and being able to deliver to customers. Um, and so I think now, um, you know, I, I'm not as familiar with the crowdfunding campaign platforms as of what I was six years ago um, or seven years ago, but um, I know that at the time Kickstarter wouldn't let you put something onto their site unless you had a working prototype. And so the, the idea there is that you have to have something that you know can go into production in order to, to be able to make it happen. Um, and so you need to you know, be really careful with, um, with all marketing, making sure that, that you, you're able to live up to the expectations that you're setting um, and the promises that you're making to your customers. So yeah, whenever we've done that, we've always known that we, we have the capability to fulfill those orders further down the track. Okay, I think. Hey Simon, just um, when you guys raise the money and you send that over to, was it WaterAid? Is that, they then do the rest of it? Is that right? Yeah, so we think about, um, you know, we want to specialize, again, this is like the economist in me coming out, but we want to specialize in the things that we're really good at and then work with other people who are the specialists in their own areas. Um, so when it comes to building toilets, we knew a lot about um, development economics. We'd had a lot of experience with sanitation in particular, but we knew that we weren't the experts. We knew that there were other people out there who could do a better job of the delivery of the impact side of things. And so we sort of broke our model into, you know, we need to produce toilet paper, sell toilet paper, and then have impact. When we look at those three chunks, the first chunk and the last chunk don't really matter unless we can prove that we can actually sell the product. And so we said, let's make sure that we're the experts in this and work with other people who we think can do a great job on these other two chunks. And then once we know that this can work, we can come back and, and figure out how to get better and better at doing these other two things. Um, and so that's kind of the journey we've gone over the last six years. All right, and then do they just do the toilets or are they doing the whole sewage line as well and all that 
Yeah, so it's, um, we now work with five different organizations. And so um, the solutions that they're putting in depend on which area they're in. So, um, you know, we do a lot of work in regional Papua New Guinea and East Timor, for example. And in those environments, you're often many kilometers from a main road on, you know, a really um, worn out dirt road. Um, and so you want to have local materials that are easy to source because then when stuff breaks, it's easy to replace and plumbing is not possible. So it's typically going to be a drop, you know, compostable toilet um, built out of, you know, probably bamboo for the shelter and then possibly cement or even plastic because you can carry a plastic toilet up really easily from, from the main road. Um, when we're in a like an urban slum environment like in Nairobi, then the solution needs to be quite different because it's a very dense, you know, heavily populated area. Um, and so we work with a really cool organization there called Sanergy who do some amazing work around how to work in that environment. Cool. Thank you. So wasn't that awesome? And please join me in thanking Simon. Yeah.